Welcome to what promises to be a fairly bumper episode on Castle Acre Priory, which is the historic site uh, study for the Norman paper in 2021. It's interesting for lots of reasons, but as we mentioned in the last episode, it really does illuminate a lot of the changes in Norman England. Yeah, it does. It, it's um, the, the Castle Acre Priory is like a little sort of case study mm. of the influence of the Normans on monastic life in yeah. England after the conquest. And that, that not just like the monastic revival, which we'll talk about today, but also in like the design of the place, Romanesque architecture. Yeah. Um, and also the, the political and social changes they bring. Yeah. So, all right, I suppose the first question is then, why is it a priory and not an abbey? Okay, so the most... Um, monastic orders and the most famous one being the Benedictines in this era the way that their orders work is that every single monastery is an abbey and it's led by an abbot they might all follow the same rule i.e. the rule of St Benedict but every abbot is independent they run their houses as they see fit and a priory is very different because it's not independent it's like a um, a, a, a sub house if you like yeah. of one mother house and in when we talk about castle acre priory the mother house is is Clooney, and yeah. they belong to the cluniac order and instead of it being run by an abbot it's run by a prior who takes their orders straight from the abbot of Clooney. Okay, so that's that's basically why it's a priory, and that's already opened up, I think, an awful lot of questions, hasn't it, about who are the Cluniacs, why are they here, uh, why aren't they abbeys and all the other bits and pieces. So, shall we kick straight off with a conversation about why monasteries? Why, why are monasteries important? I mean, we, we did the basic stuff about in the last episode about this is what a monastery is, um, and the main religious reason, but it's probably worth checking it again. So come on, I am, <clears throat> uh, I am a, a baron in Norman England. Mm-hmm. I've done some questionable things in my life, and now here I am. I'm rich. I've got plenty of money. What am I worried about? Yeah. So th- this is um, this is the number one reason why these people are building monasteries. It's a religious function for you because you've just come over to England. You've taken part in the Norman conquest of England. You've taken part in battle. You've either killed people or you've been part of the process, which has killed other people. Mm. So one of the best ways that you can show your sorry for the sins that you've committed is that you can create a monastic community. And then that community will repay that investment by praying for your soul and for the soul of your family, all the benefactors, the people that are involved in in creating this community, with the view that when you do die, you spend as little time in purgatory as possible and you have a nice, simple route to heaven. And, of course, when I die, I can be buried there as well, which is, you know... And the, 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 the Warren family... They are buried in their yeah. Cluniac establishments. Yeah. Um, I don't think it, uh, 
uh, Castle Lake of Priory, I think it's Lewis. Lewis, how we pronounce it. It's also worth, I think, remembering that isn't there a, a directive from the Pope Yes, that they yeah. should build these, like Battle Abbey and the other bits yeah. and pieces. This isn't necessarily just these 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 mercenary lords doing it off their own back. They've been told to expiate the sins of the conquest. Mm. You must do this. Yeah, and William leads by example. He talks yeah. about Battle Abbey yeah. on the site of the actual battle itself, um, and then the other major lords they all follow suit. And they can choose different orders. You can have Benedictine foundations, but the Normans like the Cluniacs, as I'm sure we'll talk about later on, why yeah. they choose the Cluniacs specifically. Um, but there is another aspect as well, it's to say thank you. Yes. You know, before William came to England, he won the support of the papacy for his yeah. holy war, the papal yeah. banner. And part of the, the wider picture, you know, when they when the Normans take control of England, 25% of land in England is granted yeah. to the church. And the foundation of these monastic communities, and also like building of other religious buildings, cathedrals and you know churches, it's all part of that process of the yeah. Normans showing their support for God has been repaid and that they're thankful yeah. for it. And it's also, I suppose, part of the, the wider drive for reform because part of the deal with the Pope was we will reform uh, religion, the church in England, and monasticism is one of those things that needs reforming quite badly, yeah. because a lot of these monastic orders have moved away from the rule of St. Benedict, they're eating lavishly, dressed lavishly, not fulfilling the orders of the day, and so... A clean slate approach is, is very much on the cards, yeah. isn't it? And that's why the Cluniacs are perfect yeah. for this process. As a, a French monastic house, they have no connection to England. Yeah. So for the Normans, a brand new dynasty in charge, a clean break from the past, the Cluniacs are an ideal accompaniment to that. Yeah. They, they come over with no connection whatsoever. And of course, they are heavily involved in monastic reform yeah. On the continent already. And if, if you're looking for something less, uh, if you're looking for something less corrupt, then you, you, you're on a pretty winner with the Cluniacs, who are very straight down the line, very severe, very, you know, this is how we will worship. And I suppose, again, that level of control given by the fact that it's a mother house with the, the priories. Yeah, they work very closely with the papacy. You know the, the Cluniacs. That they they are the mouthpiece, if you like, the monastic mouthpiece of the papacy in this period. So, do you want to talk about the Cluniacs first, or talk about monastic revival and reform, or how do you think it'll fit best? Well, I mean, we could talk about like, who the Cluniacs are and, yeah. and and why the Normans specifically choose them, and how yeah. it links to Castle Acre, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, and then that will link into our individual who's important, yeah. William de Warren and, okay. the, and the choices that he makes. So the Cluniacs are, as we've said repeatedly, they're a Norman monastic order based at Cluny in Normandy. And their abbot is Hugh, who by all accounts, Hugh of Cluny, is a very holy individual, but also is quite strong-willed, I think it's fair to say. Well, because he's asked to import his method of worship into England by the Duke of Normandy himself, 
later yeah. king of England, yeah. and he refuses. He refuses, yeah. And I think the reason why he refuses is quite key as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Cluniacs have got this um, this independent outlook, haven't yeah. they? They they are they, they don't like to have any lords have control over them. And one yeah. of the one of the problems with monasticism in England, but also on the continent, is that the local lords they they control these monasteries. They control yeah. the appointment of the abbots. They they take money from them. They use them for their own advantage. And and Abbot Hugh doesn't want William no. to do the same with his monastic order as part of a con- tool of conquest. As uh, the, the Benedictine rule, the rule of St. Benedict requires that the monastery be self-sufficient. That means they have to grow their own crops. The only way you can do that is if you are granted land. And normally under the feudal system, certainly on the continent, if you are given land by a lord, there are strings attached to that, which is you take, you give us the excess, you give us all the other bits and pieces. What Hugh wants is you give us the land and then you walk away. Yeah. Leave us to it. Yeah. And it's it's that ultimate expression of the idea of a monastery being a place separate from the world. We owe no loyalty to temporal lords. There's no secular authority. We purely service the worship of God. And that's and that's again seen in that method of worship that the Cluniacs have, which is seen as being particularly severe mm. and strict and holy. Yeah, it's very it's a very distinctive style of worship as yeah. well. Um, and and when you think about the Normans and their religious outlook, yeah, how important their faith is to them. Yeah. You can see why the Cluniacs are an attractive uh, proposal for these Normans yeah. when they're coming to England, and to you know to fa- to create these monastic foundations, the Cluniacs are an ideal choice for them. Yeah. And also, you you've got to remember that they're good for the control side of things as well, because it, let's not forget if we're talking about um, a part of the Norman invasion, your command and control of the conquered, uh, you, you've replaced the bishops with. Norman bishops, you've replaced the earls with Norman barons, replacing the monasteries and the abbots with Cluniac priors is a winner. Yeah, and and they become like a, whilst we're talking about, like symbol symbol of conquest. Yeah. They're the spiritual arm of of the conquest. You think about most of these Cluniac priories, they're built next to the Lord's Castle yeah. and Castle Acre Priory is an exact, um, yeah. a, a, an ideal example yeah. of that. So you build your castle, you have your temporal power, and then yeah. you build your monastery, and you've got your spiritual power. And well. also, it gives you a handy pool of educated people for your administrative centre as well, yeah. which is what castles are as well. Here's an interesting question for you Do you think it's fair to say? that monasteries are a more visible example of Norman control than cathedrals are. Because there's certainly more of them. There are, yeah. And and they're part of of communities in a way that the cathedrals themselves aren't. Yeah. You know, like a, a, a monastery, it, it's also a place where travellers can stop. It's yeah. a place where if you're ill, you can go. If you're poor, you can go and get your arms yeah. there. You... you a monastery actually plays like a leading role in a community. So yeah, I get what you're saying there. They they are 
a more visible yeah. sign of this of this change um, for everyday life. I mean, the mm. cathedral is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Look at it; it's massively spectacular. But, but how a, many are there? Yeah. There's three. Yeah, on a yeah. practical level, the monasteries are yeah are key. All right, so it, you can see why the Cluniacs are, uh, are 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 the kind of people you'd want. And we've already touched on the fact that William asks them to come and they don't. So it is now the time to talk about why they do and who it is who brings them over. Yeah, okay. So the, the key individual here is a man called William de Warren. Now, yeah. William de Warren, um, it, it seems that he decided that he wanted to have Cluniac priories in England after actually going to Cluny itself. Oh, just just before we do that, it's probably yeah. worth saying who he is, that he's, he's one of William's most trusted advisors. He's been with him for long before the conquest, and he's granted quite a lot of lands, isn't he, as a reward mm. for his service during the invasion and his support before. Yeah. So yeah, so he's one of the, the the he's at the very top, yeah. of, you know, of the of the hierarchy of Norman lords. I think I'm right in saying he's one of the tenants in chief. Yes, he yeah. is. Yeah. He's definitely one of the yeah. tenants in chief. Yeah, and he's got land all over. I mean, it's not just in in East Anglia. He's got land everywhere. Yeah. So he's a very very influential man. And in fact, I think one of the reasons why the Cluniacs and they spread is because he's quite an example as well. Yeah. So when people neighboring lords see him building these primaries. Yeah. He's one of the the instigators of yes. it, and then they follow suit yeah. afterwards. Um, but yeah, he, De Warren, he they he went to Cluny, he visited it. He was very impressed with their style of worship, yeah. the the strict rules that they follow. But the, probably the most important thing to him was the fact that they devoted a lot of time to, to prayer to prayer <laughs> <laughs> for the benefactor. Yeah. And uh, you know, De Warren has got quite a lot to make up for. Yeah. There is, um, a, there is a lot of blood yeah, on yeah. his ledger. So um, they were made honorary members of the order, uh, and that would mean that they would benefit even more yeah. from the prayers of the community as a whole. And, of course, would be buried within the order and what yeah. have you. So he invites them first to his main his main sort of land holdings, which is around, however pronouncing it, Lewis. Lewis, yeah. yeah. And that was... He, f- he founded that priory in 1077. He asked Abbot Hugh to send monks to his estate. And that's the first ever Cluniac Priory in yeah. England. Um, and then he founded his second Cluniac Priory at Castle Acre to sort of like, you know, to strengthen those bonds and deepen the ties. Um, and so that's where our site really comes from. You know, yeah. William de Warren, he's a keen supporter of the of the Cluniacs. It's not his first one. Um, it's not his first establishment, but it's a it's part of a pattern that this man yeah. has. Well, in, in terms of in terms of the linkage with the wider stuff, uh, William de Warren dies in 1088 at the siege of Pevensey after the death of um, William, yeah. and in the fight against uh, Kurt Hose. Yes. and it's it's actually his son William de Warren yeah. II who starts the construction at Castle Acre. Uh, the priory next to Castle Acre, yeah. which is the headquarters of uh, the administrative centre of the de Warren family. Yeah, and yeah, he completes the the process there. Yeah, and uh, and and their influence means other laws like Roger yeah. Bigard and so on. They start yeah. building their own Cluniac establishments too. I mean, there's there's loads of them built. There's uh, the Cluniacs. Uh, 
there's 36, 36, 36. Yeah, it's 36, yeah. There's 36 priories constructed across um, by the end of the 12th century, I think. Yeah, and they... Because of this, the number of them, they become the strongest link that the yeah. monastic world in England has to yeah. the monastic world on the continent. And you have to remember, in, in this time period, the church is that multinational engine of communication and learning and uh, a monk from a monastery in somewhere in the wilds of Yorkshire could go and visit somebody in Tuscany, yeah. and they have this movement, they have this sharing, and it's that that linkage is really important. Yeah. And it'd be completely familiar to them, like the, the layout of the yeah. of the monastery itself, the the rituals that they perform, yeah. the language that they speak, everything will just be it's yeah, it's a huge community. And and while we're on the subject of that, it's worth saying that although there are still other abbeys and nunneries that aren't Cluniac. Thanks to Lan Frank introducing mm. Cluniac style worship, it, it starts to become almost standardised across across the piece yeah. with all of these different things following this very strict Cluniac style of worship. Yeah, this is and this links into like a wider development, which is what the site study is partially about yeah. anyway. Which yeah. is the monastic reforms yeah. um, that the Normans introduce? So, I mean, the impact of the Cluniacs is, is felt everywhere. Yeah. They transformed the cultural life of English monasteries. Yeah. They, um, the, the Norman abbots, they brought new learning with them from the continent. Land Frank himself, he, he brought the customs and the styles of the services that were common yeah. in the Norman houses, the Norman monasteries, which were modelled on those at Cluny. Yeah. And then there, then disseminated to English uh, monasteries, um, a, a day in the life of a monk is transformed. Right, so this is quite interesting, yeah. because obviously I, I talked in the last episode about the, the, the rule of St. Benedict, and the idea that you work in service to the worship of God. Yeah. But in the Cluniac system, no, no, no. no. Now, <laughs> your role yeah. is to pray. Mm -hmm. There are those who work, those who fight, and those who pray. Yeah. And you are now those who pray. And the work is done by domestic servants now. Yeah. To free up the monks to spend their life in contemplation and prayer. Yeah. And, and this is where you get that kind of the stereotype of what it's like to live in a monastery. Yeah. The, the, the vows of silence and poverty and chastity. Oh, which, the, which had slackened off yeah. in Anglo-Saxon England and now absolutely iron yeah. hard. And the, the, the chain of command, the authority, yeah. the, the respect for the prior. Um, yeah, this is what the Cluniacs do. They, they give us that stereotypical yeah. view of what life in a monastery is like. And you, you mentioned it earlier as well, because they've got this real strong independent ethos that, and yeah. they're, they're free from feudal services. Yeah. They only answer to the abbot of Cluny. Um, you mentioned before, you know, he refused to send the monks because he didn't want William yeah. to use them as, as, a, as a tool. Of and of course, it's interesting that William, out of all of these people, yeah. never actually found a Cluniac no. priory because he's not, out of everybody the, the feudal lords the tenants in chief these people they're happy to accept it but, but he him, as no. king will not tolerate that level no. of independence it's if you're if you're setting up a, a priory on my <laughs> land you do what I say is it worth um, 
Is it worth talking about the actual design then? Yeah, I mean, we could we could talk about the design, and then maybe we could talk consider what the different motivations were in a bit more de- depth. You know, other reasons yeah. why you create monetary political okay. reasons, so on. Yeah. Well, or should we? Well, we'll do that now then before we actually start getting into the nitty gritty of how the things are built. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Um, the the other one, which again I mentioned in the last episode, is it's a useful sponge for excess nobility. Is the best way I can describe it. <laughs> yeah. Which is all right. I'm again. I'm I'm a baron. Yeah. I've I've got my lands that I got in the conquest. Unfortunately, I've got three sons and six daughters. Yeah. And I, I can't afford that many dowries. There's only so many wars. What do I do with the leftovers? Yeah. So, and this this is a, a part of a general trend up until like the twelfth century of the aristocracy, like donating their children mm. to to monastic um, communities. Uh, but it's a great way, isn't it, of offloading yeah. uh, an expense that you don't really want to have. So, if you've got no inheritance, you go to a monastic <clears throat> community. It's worth pointing out that this links to the changes that the Normans bring to law and order. Because before they make the changes to inheritance, this isn't an issue because the land will be split yeah. and parceled up. But now it's primogeniture, eldest gets the lot, mm. right? You, second, off to a monastery. Yeah, or go on crusade or something, yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. yeah, There has to be an alternative way for them to support themselves. And of course, the same for, for unmarried daughters as well. Yeah. You know, they, they, they have to be placed somewhere so they yeah. go into a monastic community. Um, and in general, you know, a well-run monastic community has another benefit as well, which is an economic benefit Definitely. to it as well. But Definitely, yeah. If you're a lord and you've got a really well-run monastic community, it's an investment that you've made, not just for your soul, but yeah. it's also, also for your pocket as well. Yeah, and, you, and they'd expect a return, I'm pretty sure. And and even, even aside from that, um, as we know from... Other bits of history, like the Great Depression or things we've been through now, spending on infrastructure is good for the economy anyway. So the actual business of building these priories generates wealth, it generates jobs, employment, creates towns to actually... Because you need villages and you need towns, you need staff to provide for these Cluniac monks because they don't work for themselves... And that leads to the growth of burgesses, and so they they really are economic motors. Quite yeah. aside from what's expected of them, they have that impact. And I suppose as well because they are these early foundations, they tend to be built next to the castle as yeah. well. The castle monastery is that nucleus, isn't it? The yeah. way people come, they're drawn to and yeah. markets, yeah, fairs, markets, fairs, yeah. and, and they yeah they become like economic centers. So, and that links into like the like a, an additional reason why you would consider building these places it's for political purposes yeah. as well definitely so you, you if you want to strengthen your control over your newly acquired land your castle is one way of doing it but your priory or your monastery will also help you do that too yeah. and, and especially if the people that you're importing to come and live in that monastery come from Normandy yeah um they yeah they form part of that um, it, the, the the upper hierarchy don't they who are now in control it's it's a continuing thing we keep coming out when we're looking at medieval uh, history is the use of religion to control subservient populations right and especially when you're imposing this new slightly different style of feudalism where you are now part and parcel of the land and you can't leave etc etc well it's God's will and how do we know it's God's will because there's the monks here telling you 
that it is God's will. Yeah. It's, like we said, the spiritual arm, isn't it? Yeah. God is with the Normans. You know, if you, that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the message that the Anglo-Saxons get. And you can't doubt that when you no. see these buildings going up everywhere. Um, is it worth mentioning the knock-on effect? It's not a reason to build it, but it's certainly a knock-on effect of education. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely relevant. Yeah, that they they will they will become centres of education, mm. which again will attract trade, which will attract visitors, and you get the libraries and improve medicine yeah. in the in the area. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that the, the main source of learning is the church, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah, it's this natural that monasteries with, with new learning being brought over from the continent, then they, they do also become the centres of education. Um, I just think before we move on from it as well, just make sure that you understand why Castle Acre is really important in that because yeah. it it illustrates perfectly the link between the spiritual, the political yeah. power. The priory built next to the castle yeah. as part of this new complex, yeah. you know, this political religious complex which the Normans are imposing yeah. on Anglo-Saxon England to help them establish their authority. And it, it, it's the same from the people point of view. You have this very important tenant-in-chief, a noble warlord, for want of a better term, allied with uh, a religious driver in the form of Lanfranc and Abbot Hugh. And you can see again there the linkages between the secular and the religious so, I think it's time for us to talk about the actual building itself. Yeah, and how that reflects the wider fashions and trends that the Normans... All right, um, so a couple of, couple of quick basics about a monastery. The monastery complex is not one building, right? It's not one building. It is a complex of buildings, and it faces inwards. It faces away from the outside world. It's generally... If you look at one from above, any abbey will have a church building and then attached to it a cloister. Mm -hmm. And the cloister is the enclosed square of ground where the um, where the oh, where the monks can gather yeah. and walk. If, if you're having difficulty visualizing it, Think of the square at Hogwarts. Yeah. Because in the Harry Potter films, they actually filmed in the cloister yeah. at Durham Cathedral. So you can, you can see sort of like a square with a, a stone walkway around it. And attached to that, you'd have various other buildings. Yeah. And, and which, there's, there's doorways in and out from yeah. the cloister into the church yeah. as well. Yeah, and then around that, you've got the domestic arrangements as yeah. well. And Castle Acre Priory is a perfect case study yeah. of the new style and the, the, the new ideas that the Normans bring over yeah. for how monasticism should work. So if I, if I do the, the basic architecture engineering bit first... If you like, right? yeah. So um, there's two things that allow the construction of buildings like Castle Acre Priory, which is the vaulted arch... Uh, sorry, the vaulted ceiling and the pointed arch. Mm -hmm. And combined together, they allow rectangular buildings with much higher ceilings. Secondly, the external style of the building is Romanesque, which is built out of simple, symmetrical, repeating patterns. The reason that's important is that's a Norman innovation. It's not Anglo-Saxon. No. 
it's something they've yeah, brought they in. They have brought with them. So it 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 again drives home that physical visual representation of this is ours. We are here, we are now in charge. Yeah. And Castle Acre, you talk about Romanesque, you talk yeah. about the arches and so on. So as a Cluniac Priory, you'd expect to see the Romanesque fashion yeah. on uh, you know the impact of that on the buildings at Castle Acre. Uh, so the west front of Castle Acre Priory um, was a picture-perfect example yeah. of a Romanesque facade. It was originally decorated with bright colours and statues, which again was part of the uh, fashion, part of the accepted norm. And then when you go inside the building as well, <clears throat> and excavations have shown that the interior of the Priory was also brightly painted, uh, the floor had, was decorative, and it's got lots and lots of examples of the Romanesque arches and then, and then as it builds towards the vaulted ceilings as well. So, yeah, yeah in, in terms of the, of the type of architecture and the style, Castle Acre Priory matches it perfectly. Yeah, it does. Um, there's a couple of other interesting Cluniac yeah. elements as well. Uh, which is the introduction of the choir. So the choir is the area that you might be familiar to if you've ever visited a church where you have two rows of benches facing across at each other. And that gives us, that's where the monks would sit mm -hmm. and they would sing the offices and do the prayers. And it's what actually gives us our word for choir where people sing. Yeah. And that is usually in the main nave at the far end towards the... Oh, I suppose it's worth saying that the, the church runs east, west, west to east, to east yeah. uh, with east being the bit that's closest to Jerusalem, yeah. therefore the holiest, and that's where you would find the altar. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you talk about the, the choir. In a typical Cluniac priory, that eastern end where the, the choir is, it was typically semicircular, yeah. with semicircular apses which went all around the edge, which contained individual chapels. Um, that was very, very typical of Cluniac foundations. And of course, Castle Acre Priory has those yeah. uh, um, you those need, features You need too. those extra altars for yeah. all the extra daily masses that are being said. Yeah. And that's why you have this strange cluster at the East End. Yeah. And um, you, you've, you've got other things which are typical of, 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 of these churches in general, that you have a, 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 sacrist, a sacristy. Sacristy, yeah. Where yeah. you... Where you um, you store your religious equipment and your yeah. religious robes and so on. Um, but at Castle Acre, this eastern end, which is so important, it was extended even yeah. more. For more to, services. For more services, yeah. 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 Um, so the... What about the actual orientation, like the cloister? As All right, well? so the cloister yeah. is orientated in such a way that you get light yeah. coming in. Usually it's on the south, like a south-facing garden. So you get daylight the whole time. And the idea for that is so that the monks who are copying the texts are able to um, get light all yeah. day. And That's basically and, it. Yeah, and the big, you know, the, the, the huge buildings don't cast shadows into this area. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're working along the walls, facing south at their desks. They can eke out every single last piece of, of daylight. Yeah. And again... Castle Acre is perfect for it. Yeah. If you look at Castle Acre from the sky, you can see that it is orientated 
in that exact fashion. Yeah. You have you have the church running from east to west with two transepts, north and south added, so that it gets a cruciform shape. So it looks like a cross from above, and then attached onto the bottom, you have the cloister facing south. And then, I suppose, is it worth talking about all of the domestic buildings around there? Because this is a self-contained yeah. community. Yes. Cut off from the world. So everything you need has to be there. Yeah, they, 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 they divide it up into different ranges, different areas. So the West Range is where you'd have your main entrance to the priory. You have the kitchens, you have the guest rooms. Um, in the 12th century, it also had a, a, a private bedroom and chapel for the prior. Uh, before that, they all slept together in the same dormitory. Which is much more Cluniac, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. You yeah. can tell that's a, a later sort of addition, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then you've got the East Range, which is where the main dormitory at Castlemaker is. Um, and the dormitory is basically where the, the monks yeah. will, will, will sleep. sleep. Yeah. sleep. He, he says it uh, the and there'll also be the day room yep, down at end, which is heated in the same way as the dormitory, and that's an indoor space for them to be able to actually work when it's too cold, too cold. to work yeah. in the cloister. They work completely heartless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then if, if it's really very, very cold, they have a warming house as well, where there's a nice fire, and the monks can meet there during very cold winter days. Yeah. Um, and then there's other, there's other there's a parlour as well uh, at the north end of the day room where the monks were actually allowed to talk if their duties permitted oh. so that's a, a, again a little bit of a privilege that's nice there. isn't it yeah. um, and then the whole thing is connected by staircases the day, sta day stairs where the monks yeah. can enter the dormitory from the cloister um, that's it, all part of procession we forgot to mention yes, that as yeah. well and with the doors into the church yeah. so they could process from yeah the uh, uh, from from the dormitory around the cloister into the into church, the church yeah. along the nave through the choir and then out at the bottom of the south transept chanting and singing yeah. uh, all, all the way so that's that's their yeah. religious journey the if you're picturing this the uh, the day room and the warming room later the parlor are connected to where the uh, refectory would be the idea being that your source of heat for all of these is coming from the kitchens. It's coming yeah. from the same place. Because uh, you don't want to be having multiple fires going, what have you. But you've got to think what a mammoth task it is to prepare the food yeah. for this community twice a day. And the kitchens must have been vast. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the monasteries are they're at the cutting edge, aren't they, yeah. of domestic arrangements and technology. Yeah, I mean, it, they're, they're, we've got a lot. We're very lucky in, in Yorkshire, the part of the world where we're coming from. We've got lots and lots of yeah. You can go, around, you can go and actually at, yeah. see them, can't you? Yeah. And you know, Castle Acre Priory would have been another great example of that. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you have particularly elderly monks, because it's a lifetime gig. Yeah. If you're there and you're starting to get old, you can't do the same things other people can do. So they have an infirmary mm -hmm. uh, where you can get. Uh, care when you're elderly, but also if you're sick. Yeah, and it had its own beds. It, uh, it probably had its own chapel as the, there as well to make it easier for the yeah. elderly and sick monks so they don't have to make their way to the main church as well. Because yeah. after all, their whole life is devoted to prayer, so yeah. that has to be made easy for them. And I suppose it falls to me to do the, the slightly unsavoury bit, which is you need toilets. <laughs> yeah, you need sanitation. And uh, in most monasteries, and certainly in Castle Acre this is true, uh, there's usually a stream 
over which the toilets are built, and that basically performs your your flushing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> activity. You just you just go there and you do your business and the, the it's carried away. Plumbing was very sophisticated. And they also, they diverted streams as well to, yeah. to power water wheels as well. Which really and I, I believe I'm right in saying that there's a fish pond here yeah. as well. They divert a stream to make an Abbott's fish pond. Uh, yeah. So uh, it, it's always easier to see when you've got a map in front of you, but it's worth having a look at plans of Castle Acre Priory and seeing just how formidable a, a a building it is and even even the ruins left today where you can't really see much of the castle but you can see the uh, the priory itself yeah it's still a fascinating yeah. Well, building uh, yeah and you know it was built to stand the test of time wasn't yeah. it and you know well, like, like we've been saying leaving aside henry the eighth it has yeah, yeah you know it it, it was Yet another symbol of conquest. Not just Castle Acre Prairie on its own, but all of them were. Mm. So they were built to last. They were long-lasting symbols of conquest and long-lasting uh, or um, investments by yeah. the people that built them to look after them and their families forever, yeah. essentially. That was the plan. Well, I suppose that, that brings us really onto the meat of the conversation then, doesn't it? I mean, that's the basic stuff on it. But now you come down to, okay, if somebody says to you, what's the main impact of, of you know, the Cluniacs, of monastic reform, what do you say? Do you say it's the religious? Do you say it's the social? Do you say it's the political? Do you say it's the economic? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I, it's, it's the spiritual, it's the religious, yeah. because... The whole reason why they're building these things, they're religious motivations. This is a time where everybody believes in God. Everybody believes in heaven and hell. Mm. And my personal opinion is that the religious impact is the most important. But then in the longer term, when the monasteries start taking on significance, you know, in terms of of the economy and so on, then, yeah, sure, they do become important considerations, important impacts, I, I I agree with you, uh, and I'll come back to it in a second about the religious thing, but I think the most important impact is possibly the political and economic. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's intended. No. It's, I don't yeah. think it's planned, but I think that that economic powerhouse that that represents, because you've got to think about how much wealth mm. is in those monasteries and in yeah. those priories. By, later on, yeah. Henry, I mean, he knows, doesn't he? He knows yeah, it's there yeah. and the sheer amount of money he brings in. I One of my things that I find most interesting when you think about this, because I love that when you look at this stuff, you start to think about stuff differently. And we always think of the, the Norman invasion as being political and dynastic. It's, it's mm-hmm. William who is, you know... He, he thinks he's been cheated out of his throne, so he gets his lads together, and I'm going to take what's mine. But when you look at this, and we, we've got a table in front of us that's just covered in papers, yeah. right? It's just absolutely covered in papers. It, it's a religious war. Mm. It is. It, it might not have started that way, but you've got the Pope's support, you come in to get the Pope's support, you've promised to reform the church, and then you've got your individual lords like William de Warren, yeah. who who must have been a religiously impressive enough person that Abbot Hugh has 
brought him into the order and his mm. wife. Yeah. This is this is a revolution of a religious character and it's impacting on every corner of the kingdom. Yeah. You know, you just you made me think as well about the whether it's planned as well. I think one thing you, you can say in terms of politics, the it is planned in to the extent mm. that they they know that the Cluniacs and these monasteries are another symbol. Yes, yes. So I think yeah, maybe that is planned, and you know they you could you could make a lot of the evidence where they're always built next to castles. Mm-hmm. So you've got the physical and spiritual. Um, were they built next to castles because the Normans were vulnerable and in these early days and they to needed them. the protection? Yeah. You know, so I suppose the argument against that is that uh, the Castle Acre Priory isn't finished until the 1100s, yeah. by which point they're much more secure. Yeah. So you wouldn't think they need... They, they can't be worried about no. an Anglo-Saxon uprising at that the, point. The original community monks were actually in the castle, weren't mm. they? Because one of the, William de Warren and all the de Warrens, they, they moved them out of the castle because yeah. it's, it's not sufficient for their needs. No. So yeah, so later on, when you when you get the real flourishing... And there is there is an argument to be made as well that as much as the Norman lords are using the Cluniacs, the Cluniacs are using mm. the Norman lords because they're doing very well out of yeah. this. Doing God's work. Yeah, but but also this this money is getting funneled back to Cluny, and the Abbot of Cluny is building up his international power and reputation, and is standing with the Pope through this and that's one of the reasons the Cluniacs become one of the driving yeah. forces in the rest of Europe that's funded by this that's fascinating isn't it <laughs> <laughs> so I mean ah. I suppose that, like, to, to, to draw it all together because Castle Acre Priory you need to be looking at how it illustrates bigger trends yes wider trends and, and yeah. developments within that period of time. It's not just about the specifics of the Dorens, about Abbot Hume. I mean, those individuals are important. Yeah. But Castle Acre Priory, it's part of the monastic revival yeah. in England after the conquest. Yes, very much so. It's part of the monastic reform movement, which is being driven from the continent, from the yeah. papacy, through the Cluniacs into England. Yeah. It's part of a bigger story of the conquest itself in terms of political control. Yeah. Of economic and social developments as well. Yeah. And of course it's part of the general fashion and trends and the thoughts of the Normans themselves with their architecture, with their style of worship. So it Castle Acre Priory can be used to illustrate all of those developments. Yeah. And that that's basically it. That's mm. the question that you'll have in the exam, which is how far does Castle Acre, the study of Castle Acre, support this statement? Yeah. And that's it. It will support pretty much any statement you want. You just got to use the information at your hands yeah. to create that argument. Yeah. Because you can argue any of them. Absolutely, and you have enough key individuals. You can talk about the design of the building and how that reflects all these bits and pieces, the size, the wealth, Romanesque architecture. Yeah, it's a good one, is Castle Acre. It's a good one. It illuminates a lot. It does. Well, that was a bumper one. 
Uh, thank you very much for sticking with us. Thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams. Yeah.